Well, thanks so much, Cheryl, for those readings. Friends, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the generous gift of your word. Uh, Father, we thank you that we can hear it read publicly. Father, we thank you that uh, we can study it, explore it, and come to know Jesus and come to be more like Jesus through it. Father, we ask for this morning that you'd help us as we reflect on the words that Cheryl's just read for us. Father, we ask that you'd be at work and that you would change us through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, those verses that Cheryl read for us from Psalm 119, they're surrounded by or or they're framed by one key claim, that the psalmist loves the Word of God. And so we saw it there at the start in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day. That's at the start, but then down at the end in verse 103. The psalmist declares, how sweet are the words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. But why does he love the word of God? Why does he just love it? I think that's the the natural question that is provoked when someone says something like that, when someone says, I really love whatever it is, I really love this movie. You think, well, there there are so many movies. What is it about that one that you love? Or a set of kitchen knives. There's so many. Why do you love that? It's the natural question. And actually, that's a, a fairly typical form of Hebrew interaction. A statement will be made and then it will be followed straight after by an explanation or an answering of that statement. It's the same here. The psalmist now tells us why he loves the Word of God. But look, before we we think about why he loves it, let me just make a few notes about the psalm in its entirety. So as we've heard, Psalm 119 is a a long psalm. It's actually the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's in the longest book in the Bible. And as we heard from Tash this morning already, it is all about the Bible. It's about the Word of God. It, It even uses eight Hebrew terms to refer to the Word of God. Uh, They seem to function like synonyms. Um, In the English, we end up using seven terms to translate those eight Hebrew words. They are word, law, command, statute, precept, decree, promise, ordinance. Um, As I said, it's actually hard to distinguish if there's any nuance going on between those terms. I think they function as synonyms. But each of them, they occur with the same frequency, So in the whole psalm, they start from 19 usages up to 25, so fairly consistent usages of of those terms. They're very evenly spread throughout the psalm, and they're used quite a lot. Um, On average, it's pretty much one of those synonyms is used every single verse. So that's incredible. And it's telling us that, that even though we haven't read all of that psalm this morning, it is all about the Word of God. And that also explains the structure of this psalm. Tash mentioned that it's an acrostic in form, um, which I think is pretty tricky. You can see what I mean by that when you look at this image. Uh, What you can see there is that every set of eight sentences begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet there, which is Aleph, 
And then you've got eight sentences beginning with that first letter before it then moves on to the next letter. And so you might have seen this morning in your English Bibles that mem might have been written above these particular verses we're looking at. So at the start of verse 97, well, that's the Hebrew letter that these eight sentences start with. But why do that? Why use an acrostic form? Well, it's sort of signifying to us that this psalm is telling us everything that needs to be said about the Word of God. This is a comprehensive account. It goes from the start of the alphabet right through to the end. It's, it's a bit like the Amazon logo. I think we can bring that up. You can see there it starts, there's this arrow, it goes from A to Z. And what they mean by that is they deliver everything from A to Z all the way through. That is what they deliver. So too Psalm 119 here, when the, the various different sections are taken together, the acrostic form is telling us that we have everything that we need to know about the Word of God. Okay, let's come back to these specific verses. And we'll move closer to this idea of, well, why does the psalmist love the Word of God? Now, before we get to that, I just want to explore the space a little bit by asking, well, well, hang on, why does anyone love reading anything? I think if I look out here this morning, um, again, Jono's and Mandy's mentioned we've got a, a full house this morning. I'm sure there are many avid readers amongst us. Some will read books, some newspapers, some will do it online, some will do it in hard copy. We can toss in blogs, we can toss in social media, uh, messenger, uh, emails. Some of us, I suspect, might actually read for several hours every day. Um, just before I got up this morning, uh, my iPhone sent me an alert saying how much time I'd spent online every single day this week, and it was quite a lot. And um, so much of that is actually just reading. You know, I think there was a, a deep concern at points that with the, uh, the spread of um, online stuff and perhaps the decline of traditional books that people would stop reading. Uh, I wonder if that hasn't really happened. I wonder if it's just a different form that we're doing it in. But why do we, why do we read? What do we get from it? Everyone's different, of course. If, we, if we're reading big books, novels, or some read for the sheer escapism of it, uh, they love being in another world, another universe that is, is really just so different from their own. It just takes them away to another place. And so we, we might think of Lord of the Rings and, and uh, works like that. Uh, for some, it's just entertainment, isn't it? It's the drama, it's the intrigue, it's the plot twists, it's the John Grishams or the, the Harry Potters, perhaps. For some, it's, it can actually be a lot more practical. They just want to know stuff. You know, they want to know how to, things work. They want to know what happened in the past. They want, they want history. And so at this point, we're talking about non-fiction books. Especially today, I think people read just to find out what others are up to. That might be on social media, hearing about what's been going on, where, where are people at, even if that is sometimes a bit more visual than text-based. But whatever the case, when we read, we read with a purpose. We actually see that when major events happen. Those who read, they change what they read. Now, today, maybe it's a little too early to make a call on, on the big trends we're seeing in reading at the moment, but the initial research is saying that during this pandemic, sales of books that talk about isolation... They are just skyrocketing. And even if we move into films, the films that are they're being rewatched, they're being brought back from the back catalogue, it's films about pandemics. It seems there's something quite therapeutic about engaging with and, and 
listening to and, and watching people go through similar experiences that, that we're going through. But again, my point's quite simple. When we read, we read with a purpose. And so why does the psalmist read the Word of God? Why does he meditate on it all day long? Why is it it's such a delight? If we could ask crudely, what does he get out of it? Well, he tells us in verses 97 to 100. He reads the Word of God because it makes him wise. Now, I'm going to say that again because it's just so important for understanding these verses. He reads the Word of God because it makes him wise. We see that in verse 98. He says, the Word of God makes him wiser than his enemies. Then in verse 99, the the Word of God gives him more insight than his enemies. Or again, in verse 20, the Word of God provides him with more understanding than the elders. Now, in, in just a bit, we'll think about it in what sense reading the Word of God makes you wise. But I think we should first notice what he's not saying. So he's not saying that by simply reading words on a page, you will somehow mysteriously become wise. It doesn't work like that. There is a process here. Notice how the psalmist uses the language of meditation in verse 97. So that's not just reading. That's thinking about it. It's tossing it over. It's coming back to it again and again. Or again in, in verse 98. The psalmist talks about how God's commands, they are always with him. So he doesn't just read the word and then instantly forget what he's read. He thinks about it. He mulls it over. It is always with him. And I love the the image of the cow at this point. Chews the grass, sends it down to the first part of the digestive system, then it comes back up, chews on it again, and then sends it down and it repeats it's a little bit of agricultural, I know, so forgive me that. Um, it's not sheep, so um, that's, that's something. Um, we are moving on a bit. Um, but I, I think a nice way of thinking about the Word of God. We're to keep coming back to it and getting more and more out of it. It's not a quick read and move on. Which is to say, if the Word of God is going to do its job, if it's going to make us wise... This is not a rush job. Serious reading. That's what we're talking about, quality reading. Reading in which we think, we reflect, and actually we discuss. We, we come across parts that actually I'm not too sure what that means, and, and I'll call a friend, I'll, I'll find out, I'll ask. Let's talk about it so we can apply it to ourselves today. And so I wonder, how are we going at this? How are we going with reading with purpose? I actually think this can be an issue for Christians both young and old. For the young, in in what really is a very noble desire, they just want to read through the whole Bible. And so they start the start, the end side is is the last page of Revelation, and they they just go, and they want to get through it as fast as they can. And I think that's great. It's a great desire, and certainly very useful for getting a, a big feel for the Bible as a whole. But our purpose in reading the Bible shouldn't be to get through it as quickly as possible. The purpose should be to gain wisdom. And to do that, to be changed by it, we actually need to understand what we're reading. We need to think about it. We need to apply it. And so for them, I think maybe they would benefit more if they slowed down, if they took the time they need to actually understand what they were reading. 
But of course, so too for the older Christian. For the one who has their Bible reading plan worked out. For the one who, who makes sure that they do their scheduled reading every day, that it happens. For the one that keeps the, the same pattern and may have done so for years or decades, I wonder if the danger for them is that their, their purpose in reading is not necessarily to grow wise, but to, to tick off the box, to keep the routine going. And when you do that, you can go through the rest of the day without giving another thought to what you read. That task is done. I've moved on. Well, again, our purpose should never be just getting it done. And so for them, they might consider mixing it up a bit. I actually did this recently. I, um, I found with the coronavirus coming through that actually uh, some of my weeknights are actually a lot quieter than they used to be. So less rushing off to meetings, uh, less taxiing the kids around to all their different things that they would do. And so I figured actually a good time to, to change my Bible reading up a little bit. And so I, I signed up to a plan that had me reading the whole Bible in 90 days. Uh, for me, that was actually a bit of a big change. That was moving from maybe um, two or three or so chapters a day to something like 13 or, or 15 chapters. So that was a bit of an adjustment. But actually, it was great. I actually think, in reflection, I think reading through the Old Testament in particular at a fairly rapid pace is actually maybe one of the better ways to read it. But that change of routine actually got me spending more time thinking about what I'd read throughout the rest of the day. I think I was thinking more about it than any time I have in years, actually. Now, I don't know where you're at, but I guess the big question, is your current system working? That's the question. Are you growing wise through it? Well, I'll leave that there, but it does bring us back to this question of growing wise. In what sense does the Word of God make us wise? Did it make the psalmist smarter than his enemies, his teachers, and his elders? Is that what he's saying? Has he, his IQ actually increased? Well, that's not what's being said here. Uh, wisdom in the Bible is perhaps a bit different to how we might think of wisdom today. Because in the Bible, wisdom is not IQ. Uh, it's not even being able to recite some abstract sort of proverb or, or anything like that. Wisdom is practical. Broadly speaking, we might define wisdom in the Bible as knowing how to live well in this world. And so at times, wisdom is used to refer to specific skills. And so in Exodus 28 verse 3, God gave the tailors a spirit of wisdom. It was that spirit of wisdom that enabled them to do a great job sewing the, these garments. Another example, the famous request of King Solomon. He asked for wisdom. God granted that request, but it wasn't wisdom in every area of life. We know that because ultimately Solomon did some very foolish things. He, a fairly surface reading of 1 Kings 1-11 to shows you that. No, no the, the wisdom that God granted Solomon was far more limited. God gave Solomon a specific skill, and that was the skill of administering a vast kingdom, which Solomon, in the narrative, uses straight away to discern who the real mother was of a disputed baby. Which, again, is just to say that wisdom in the Bible is so often practical. It's about how we live. Now, with that in mind, I think we can start to see why reflecting on the Word of God and doing what it says will actually make you wiser than those who don't. And that's because living life God's way works. Now, 
at one level, I think why that's the case is kind of obvious. God made the world, and so he knows the best way to live in it. Um, Same like in, in much of the things in life. If you want to work out how to best use a product, you talk to the person who made it. So you read the manual, you look at a YouTube tutorial from the manufacturer. Well, that's what we have in the Bible. God made the world, he made us to live in the world, and in the Bible, he tells us how to live in the world, how to live best in the world that he's made. Now, I want to explore this um, at some depth, actually, by, by coming at it through the side door. Uh, Tom Holland wrote a book last year entitled Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. Uh, Tom studied at Cambridge and Oxford. Uh, he's a writer. He's got numerous historical works. And so he studied in detail many, many historical civilizations, which is actually why he wrote this new book. It was through his studying of other civilizations that, that he realized that while he was very interested in them, he didn't love them, which is to say that given his choice, he would always choose to live in the modern Western world. That was his preference by far. Now, now why was that? What was it about the modern Western world that made it his civilization of choice? Well, it was things like human rights. Today, we take them as a given, I think. Um, so much so that I think we assume that right throughout history, everyone just thought that human rights were, of course, that, that's a no-brainer. Why wouldn't you? But Holland argues, well, that's actually not true at all. Human rights are not as self-evident as we might think. And actually, if we go back to ancient Rome, for example, they didn't exist. And in reality, back then, you would have been thought to be a fool to insist that every single person should have inalienable rights. And so where did our modern Western world get its belief that every human has rights? Well, part of what Holland's book does is trace this through history. And he shows that it was a gift from Christianity. So he, he brings it back to the biblical account that God created humanity in the image of God and because of that, humans are endowed with dignity and worth. And from there, the concept of human rights spread. And then he sort of picks it up again on, on the biblical basis there. Gregory of Nyssus opposed both slavery and also the dumping of unwanted children on rubbish heaps in the 4th century. It was made explicit by the canon lawyer Gratius who in the 11th century declared that everyone was equal in the sight of God and, and campaigned to remove anything in the law that said otherwise. But it, it's not just human rights. More broadly, Holland is arguing that the distinctive values of Western thinking have pretty much all come from the influence of Christianity. And so the things that today we just take as being good the key values that, that we think are excellent, that we embrace, the ones that we want to hold on to, Holland argues, firstly, they're not self-evident, that, that every civilization didn't just sit down, think about it, and come up with them. It's the opposite, actually, thinks they're, they're not self-evident. And secondly, that they came from Christianity. As that spread, so did these ideas. And so another example is the belief that bullying is wrong. Now, where did that come from? It's, it's not self-evident. Arguably, it's the opposite. If in the animal kingdom the fittest survive, then on what basis might we say that it's wrong for humans to do the same? Now, Charles Darwin actually highlighted this and just how unnatural caring for the vulnerable is in light of evolution when he said, 
Philanthropy and care for the poor must be highly injurious to the race of man. That is, if we care for the weak, we'll be putting the rest of the human race at a disadvantage. But again, Holland shows that our modern view that bullying is wrong actually comes from the Christian concept of a crucified God and how the powerful might choose to die for the weak. So it's an interesting book. Uh, I'd recommend you have a read, but interesting also because Holland's not a Christian. So it's interesting, I think, that that a non-Christian would have such nice things to say about Christianity, but it's actually not unusual. We're starting to see more and more of this. Uh, More and more atheists adopt this type of attitude, the attitude that says that if Christianity didn't exist, we'd need to invent it because we really like what it teaches. Uh, Richard Dawkins expressed a similar sentiment when he was asked what he might think if Christianity declined. And he said he wasn't sure that it would actually be a good thing, commenting that Christianity might be a bullock against something worse. And that's really where Holland ends up. He doesn't believe in the gospel. He doesn't believe that God did so love the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Holland doesn't believe that, but he loves Christianity because it's given us these key ideas that the modern Western world embraces and loves. And so what does it mean that the Word of God makes us wiser than others? Well, it's because God tells us how to live in this world. And when he tells us not to repay evil with evil, but evil with good, that's not self-evident. That's the right thing to do. And when God tells us to care for the vulnerable rather than exploit them, that's not self-evident. That doesn't come from reason. It comes from the Bible, and it's the right thing to do. That's how we become wise through the reading of the Word of God. We, We learn how to live well in this world. Now, what did that mean for the psalmist? I think we always have to ask that question. Um, For the writer in its original context and situation, what did it mean for them first? What did it mean for him to be wiser than his enemies and his teachers and his elders? Well, one question at this point is simply, who were these people? And I think to answer that, we, we do need to consider Psalm 119 as a whole. And specifically, I think we should zoom in on the very centre of the psalm, so verses 81 to 88. Because there we're told about how the psalmist found himself in a life-threatening situation and how living in line with God's word, it actually wasn't easy. Uh, We've got to understand that about Psalm 119. Following God's word for the psalmist was not easy. He was suffering for it. He was risking his life doing it. And so from verse 84, he writes, How long must your servant wait? When will you punish my persecutors? The arrogant dig pits to trap me contrary to your law. All your commands are trustworthy. Help me, for I'm being persecuted without cause. They almost wiped me from the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. Again, not easy for the psalmist to follow God's law. He's surrounded by those who don't follow God's law and who want to kill him. I take it that's who the enemies, the teachers and the elders are. They've they've abandoned the word of God and they are persecuting the psalmist. But the psalmist, he doesn't give up. He continues to trust that what God has said is good and right, even though it means that in his case he will suffer. 
But again, he's trusting God's wisdom. He knows he's not smarter than God. And really, I think that's where we can fail sometimes too. Uh, When life gets tough, when life is not easy, and we know what God wants us to do, we, we can suddenly think, well, we're smarter than God. We know what's going to work best in our particular situation. And so we don't listen to God and we do what we think is best. We think we're smarter than God. That's why the psalmist is a great example for us. Easy to live God's way when things are well, when it's good times. The challenge is when it's tough, when the boss says, do something illegal or you're losing your job or you can fill in whatever it is. That's when it's tough. That's when we need to learn to trust God and to remember that we are not smarter than him. And so why does the psalmist love the word of God? It's because it makes him wise, enables him to see what is right. That's what verses 97 to 100 tell us. Now, as we briefly move into verses 101 to 103, the idea moves forward a bit. It's not just that the word of God helps us to know what we should do. It helps us to actually do it. Not perfectly, of course. The psalmist acknowledges that, um, even in the last verse of this psalm, he acknowledges that he doesn't do it perfectly. He says, I've strayed like a lost sheep. There's a reference there. But the psalmist does talk about how his feet have been kept from every evil path. How he's not departed from God's laws. And that raises the question of how this happens. How does knowing what to do actually translate into doing it? Well, here's a saying that I heard during the week. You aren't what you think you are, but what you think you are. Uh, Ponder that for a moment. I I like it because I think it it captures the Bible's thinking on this pretty well. You aren't what you think you are, but what you think you are. So the more time we spend reading God's Word, the more time we spend thinking about what God would have us do, the more we actually start to do it. Uh, actually, the Bible emphasizes this, I think, continually. This idea that what you think you are. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? Well, by the renewing of your mind. That's how we're going to be changed. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. So again, change comes through changed thinking. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And so according to the Bible, what you think, you are. And what that means is that whilst we might be more used to the idea of this need to get physical exercise and to really train our bodies... God calls for us to have an exercise to train our minds. Because our minds change, our brain changes, 
Our thinking actually changes in line with how we use it. Uh, Today we're starting to hear more and more talk about this concept of neuroplasticity. And uh, really, I I think uh, neuroscience is is doing us such a great service by by emphasising, by showing us just how big an impact what we do with our brains has on our thinking. I was reading during the week about the effects of solitary confinement on the brain. It's, it's not great reading. It's really um, quite awful. Um, very distressing, I think, is what you'd say. But I was reading about this guy called Robert King. Uh, 29 years in a 6-foot by 9-foot cell with pretty much no contact with other humans. It's a long time, isn't it? 29 years in a tiny cell. When he finally left prison, he actually couldn't distinguish between faces. Everyone he saw just looked identical because he'd stopped looking at faces. His brain had stopped learning how to do that. He had to relearn that skill. How we use our brains actually changes our brains. Again, what you think, you are. And it's worth listening to some of the insights that this field brings to the dangers of things like pornography. Because what it does, it trains your mind to view others as nothing more than objects for your sexual satisfaction. And that messes you up. It messes your thinking up. The more you do it, the more it changes the way that your brain thinks about people. And the research, again, on this is just chilling. Uh, What it's telling us is that explicit material will mess up your ability to establish healthy relationships. But really, that's just another example of what our world says, something that's okay... But God is smarter, God is wiser, it's not okay, and it messes you up. And so again, what you think, you are. Even at the level of emotions. Do you see that in verse 104? It talks about how the psalmist has learned to hate every wrong path. And that happens, I think. The more that we read God's word, the more we start to align our thinking with his thinking, our emotions change. We start to love what is good and hate what is evil. Now today, I think it's tempting to leave you with a a big call to get stuck into the Word of God. Um, But I trust I've sort of already emphasized that enough this morning. And so what I want to finish with is just who this psalm is ultimately about. Uh, It's not ultimately about you or me. Um, It's not ultimately about the psalmist, actually. Now, sure. The situation that the psalmist wrote about it, it was him at the time. It was about what he was going through, it was about what he was feeling, how he was suffering and so on. But in God's providence, the psalmist was actually describing the Lord Jesus who would come maybe a thousand years later. Because Jesus is the one who always listened to God's word. Jesus is the one who always did God's word, which is to say that Jesus did what we could not. We can't fully keep God's word. We can't do that. We can't do what the the psalmist here wants us to do. But Jesus can and Jesus did, and he did it for us. And that is actually the reason why we can have total confidence in God's word, that in the end, soaking ourselves in God's word and living it out will work out for us in the end. That will give us a much better life in the here and now. Not in terms of being rich and successful or protected from sickness or suffering, but in knowing the things that really matter in life. 
And the relationship with God, that is most important. And even when hard things happen, Jesus is the reason why we can trust that it will work out for us in the end. So it helps us, this life helps us in the end. Because Jesus will take us to be with him forever. You think, well, how can we be sure that Jesus will do that? Well, Jesus followed God's word even to death on a cross. Now, that seemed like defeat in the world's eyes. In, in the Roman world, that was just shameful. But God, in his wisdom, knew that that was the way to bring the offer of forgiveness to all. And so Jesus' death and resurrection shows us that, that God's wisdom is better than man's wisdom. And it assures us of our place in heaven. And so Jesus, who is called the Word of God in the book of John, has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Let's give thanks to God for his Word. Father, we thank you for your Word, that through it we can know you, that through it, we do become wise. And that through the word, the Lord Jesus, we have eternal life to look forward to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.